0: Welcome back to Autonomish, a series about the future of regulation and accountability for autonomous systems. In the spirit of accountability and, moreover, transparency, I have a confession to make. When I was initially writing the script for this episode, I was having a lot of trouble trying to pinpoint the specific role of our next guest. She is a student, she is a researcher, but she is also much more than that at the same time. Last time, we talked about the need for people who not only deeply understand both the technical and social policy angles of artificial intelligence, but can also connect them and communicate this connection to others. Our next guest, Blakely Hoffman, is one of those people. She is a graduate student studying within the MIT Media Lab, but even before that, Blakely conducted research in the fields of human-robot interaction, multi-agent systems, and theory at the University of South Carolina, and founded the university's first women in computing organization. At the Media Lab, she belongs to the Scalable Cooperation Group, dedicated to reimagining human cooperation in the age of social media and artificial intelligence. In particular, she studies the biases of machine learning algorithms and builds tools for researchers to study the behavior of AI systems in general. Blakely is a researcher taking a step back, someone who looks at the social and ethical implications of artificial intelligence and of the other technological innovations proliferating in the public eye. We know that the advancement of technology more often than not moves at a faster pace than our ability to legislate or regulate it, so in response, Blakely and people like her try to take a step back and mindfully and proactively contextualize the social and ethical implications of these systems, and then predict where it all will go. And based on those predictions, people like Blakely attempt to address those issues before they arise, to both inform policy and social planning. (laughs) Oh gosh. So... You are a graduate student in the Media Lab and specifically in this Scalable Cooperation group. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about what that group is and what you kind of do within it as a researcher.
1: Yeah, so Scalable Cooperation um, is a group that has a lot of interests, but all of the interests kind of intersect with this theme of AI in society. And so um, one of our hallmark research, um, projects was the moral machine. And so the moral machine is basically a series of trolley problem vignettes where the user, um, on the platform can kind of decide in this situation, what do you think the self-driving car should do? And those situations, um, can vary a lot. So like, what do you think the self, should the self-driving car continue forward? Should it swerve? Um, If there are pedestrians that could possibly get injured, what if the pedestrians are jaywalking? Um, And so that project was really trying to understand, you know, what are, you know, what is society's perception of of AI and like what is its perception of like the accountability and responsibility of AI. Since then, we've also kind of branched into other projects. So we have a student, Morgan, in our group who is working on uh, what we call the future of work. So we know that, artificial intelligence and automation is something that comes up in economics discussions all the time. So people are always worried that their job is going to get automated or that the computers are going to take their jobs. Um, And so he really works on figuring out like when those fears are valid, um, when they might not be. And, you know, okay, let's assume like automation is coming. How do we really help people who will be affected by that move into um, new areas of of work. and so that's kind of you know wondering about the the effects of AI um, you know on society and 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 labor economics. Um the work that I do and it's kind of like the third arm of the group is is twofold. um one, it's to uncover the behavior of artificial intelligence systems. So we talk a lot about bias in machine learning, bias in artificial intelligence, and uh, we kind of claim that bias is one type of behavior that artificial intelligence can exhibit, but there are probably other types of behaviors that you know current AI and future AI will, will exhibit as well. And and we kind of ask questions about how do we study those? We study behavior in humans, we, we study behavior in animals, um, so when, you know, more sophisticated AI comes onto the scene, how do we study those behaviors? Um, and of course, bias really falls, falls under that umbrella and we build tools. Um, so, uh, say a researcher wants to understand computer vision algorithms, uh, we're working on a platform right now that, uh, allows, uh, developers to upload their algorithms. Um, and as well as their data sets and for um, social scientists, computer scientists to study them um, and kind of really understand using their specific expertise, what these systems are doing, um, you know, both locally in a contained environment on their computer or um, in the wild, as we say. So can you, you know, think about, can you measure what an algorithm does after it's deployed?
0: So, how would you define artificial intelligence? Because the the taxonomy of the term is pretty vague, or it can be. Um, So what kind of definition would you attribute to it?
1: Yeah, so when I first encountered this question, it reminded me a lot of a discussion I had um, during my undergraduate days when I was working with um, two robotics professors. at at my undergraduate institution. And one of the first discussions you have when you enter the field of robotics is, is like, what is a robot? And kind of to give you an example of what that conversation feels like, you say, like, oh, I think it has, like, a physical space. Uh, It um, performs an action. Uh, You know, it may or may not be controlled by a human. You know, you have all of these different descriptors of what a robot is and you get to this point where you're like well is a self-driving car a robot is okay okay maybe it is is alexa is like google home is that a robot like it ta- it has physical space it you know it's a computer that is helpful or assistive um and the way that this conversation goes is it doesn't really matter at the end of the day what the technical definition of a robot is a robot is a robot when you want it to be a robot. (laughs) Mm. Um, And I feel the same way kind of about artificial intelligence these days. Like there are all sorts of different technical definitions of like different types of artificial intelligence, but that is very specific to like the computer science and tech community. You also have the public who, you know, thinks how from like, Odyssey is an artificial intelligence or wall is artificial intelligence um and so I, I kind of at this point I don't have a precise definition because I don't think that there is one I'm kind of subscribing to the belief that artificial intelligence is labeled artificial intelligence when that is a useful label for it um so when we talk about you know uh prediction algorithms or decision making algorithms even if there is a human in the loop it seems like it's still helpful to call that artificial intelligence it's helpful to call you know a self-driving car ai it's helpful to call our favorite animated characters ai um so I think I I was listening to one of your previous podcasts and someone said, you know, I think that there will be domain specific definitions of artificial intelligence in the future. And I think, I think that that is probably true. Um, I think it's just kind of like an umbrella at this point under which, you know, specific types of technology will fall, Mm -hmm. but to say that it's one like particular thing will never capture the full picture. And then the label doesn't become quite as useful.
0: So artificial intelligence is kind of like the umbrella term. And there are a bunch of different, more specific uses for it. And that, that, yeah. I mean, because it's so interesting because nowadays, I think we use artificial intelligence as a kind of buzzword to mean like whatever we want. So there's a lot of ambiguity there, I would say.
1: Like it's bad because sometimes you want to say like, oh, if we can precisely label what AI is, then we can regulate it. But it's also sometimes good because if you could put such a precise definition on the floor to be like, this is artificial intelligence from now on. um, I'm glad that we don't do that because there are always going to be exceptional circumstances when you want that label and may not have access to it.
0: Yeah, ambiguity can sometimes be good. So how did you personally find an interest in this subject, in like artificial intelligence and its governance, and how did you get involved with this this new course that uh, professors that train and Ito are piloting?
1: At least for me, my my kind of personal journey to this space, I was a math and computer science undergraduate. Um, I went to the University of South Carolina, and ever since I entered my program, I was keenly aware of the field's lack of diversity. I was in, like, my freshman and sophomore classes, I was often, like, the only woman in the room or, like, one of a few, and you always, like, made eye contact because you're like, ah, you're here too, cool. Um, and, you know, I kind of watched the tech industry from where I was sitting in those classrooms, and I remember when Apple launched the health kit app um for the first time and I remember it was great. People were so excited. You could track like your vitamin A, B, C, I don't I don't know vitamins levels. For like everything you could track your exercise. And the one thing that was like very obviously lacking was a period tracking portion of this. So like half of their users, this is like a like a very obvious like feature to include in an app like that and they didn't build it so this is kind of like my first instance of realizing gee we keep saying technology is going to improve the lives of everyone or like we're building technology for everybody and we weren't and that was kind of like a a formative experience um and then I kind of got introduced to AI and machine learning and like what these systems could do or help with, and I thought we're already not building technology that's inclusive to everyone. I have a hunch that these like up and coming, like really hot technologies, are probably also failing people. So I remember doing like a Google search, at, like you know, machine learning, you know, women or something like that, um, just to see what would pop up. Like are people are other people asking these questions? Um, Are other people wondering about whether or not this like hot new thing is serving everybody? And I was led to Joy, Joy uh, in the Media Lab, her website um, about the Algorithmic Justice League. And sure enough, people were saying like, hey, we see this coming. It's not working for everyone. And not only is it not working for everyone, it's harming people. and I was introduced to Kathy O'Neill's book, Weapons of Math Destruction, um, which I highly recommend to everyone. Um, and that kind of started me on this path. It was, it was always from a place of, uh, I know that my field and my, you know, the, my, my peers already struggle with this issue of not necessarily being the most inclusive. Um, I wonder if that in some way is translating to our technology. Um and then slowly coming to the realization it's not just my field, it's just the data that society produces has this problem and it and it kind of permeates our, our technical system. So that's that's how I came to this problem and why I really got interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um in terms of the course specifically, so I came to I came to the Media Lab at MIT to work on these types of problems. Um, you know, not only is there a question of like, how do you recognize, you know, normative bias in systems uh, or how do you recognize when these systems are actually harming people? Uh, um, How do we prevent that? How do we regulate that? How do we build tools for, you know, future computer scientists to do better? Um, And so that was really kind of like, those were the big questions sitting on me as as I entered graduate school. And then, you know, Joey and, and Jonathan, um, I saw that they were offering this course, and I said, I have to I have to be there. Um, and not only was this course great because it was, you know, tackling those questions, it was tackling those questions in a very true-to-media lab way, um, which was it was bringing together all of these people of different backgrounds and different expertises uh, to, to have this really difficult conversation about, you know, what are we going to do about this? (laughs) Um, And so, so I, so I enrolled.
0: Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned um, a bit about the barriers that women face um, and other groups who are not historically represented in the tech field. Um, So I was wondering because of these barriers, um, how do you feel like this might affect the way that AI is studied in the future um, and how it's tested?
1: Yeah, so I think there are a couple of ways to get at this. I definitely believe who sits at the table when these algorithms are getting designed matters. And it matters from a technical standpoint who implements them. But it also matters who's sitting at the table when they decide that an algorithm is important. Because an algorithm, is it's just files on your computer or like math on a piece of paper and tell a human decides it's important or a human assigns it, you know, some, some authority. And you know, there are a lot of barriers for historically underrepresented people to enter not only tech fields, but also law, um, you know, any sort of higher education, politics. Um, I think that this definitely plays a role. Something I'm really inspired by is the fact that if you look at the fairness, accountability and transparency con- community, uh, it's really diverse. You see, you see, like women leading the forefront. You see people of color leading the way and really trailbreak, you know, trailblazing. And I think that is part of the solution. Part of the solution is giving people, you know, who are typically not given a voice, a voice in this arena, because as we've seen, these are the people who are most likely to be harmed by these systems.
0: Mm-hmm what do you see in your in your personal experience at the MIT Media Lab and just as a student in general um, as being kind of one of the main issues or biggest obstacles that you have dealt with with respect to artificial intelligence and some of its underlying implications
1: this is a good question because I think you can cut it from a lot of different angles I think I think as a researcher who is also just a member of society one of the things that i struggle with the most or that i find um hard to cope with sometimes is just the public's understanding of what artificial intelligence is um and i think you know so sometimes i'll be in like uber rides or on plane rides and you know the driver the person next to me is like what do you do like you're at mit what 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 are you working on and you know, poor them. They have no idea what they've gotten themselves into. And, you know, I say, well, I study artificial intelligence algorithms. I think about, you know, when they work, why do they work when they don't work or do stuff that we didn't really expect or we didn't intend. Why is that? And how can we prevent it in the future? And it's really interesting sometimes to see different reactions. So sometimes people are like, you know, especially, especially if I'm on like a plane coming from Cambridge, Massachusetts, people are like, oh, you mean like blah, 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 blah. And they can talk about compass or they can talk about, you know, um, you know, like, you know, facial recognition and all of the implications there. And you're like, yeah, um, that's exactly what I mean. And then two minutes later and they're like, well, have you seen the minority report? And like, they automatically make that jump. Um, and you're like, oh, whoa, whoa. we're, we're not quite there yet. Um, we we don't need to be quite that worried about it um, but sometimes you know other times I'm from the south and so sometimes I'll talk to the people I know there and they'll talk about you know oh well, like that's really good work that you're doing because Siri never understands me and my southern draw um, and you know I think something that I struggle with a lot is this work is really important but it's not necessarily important on a national stage yet in the way that I think climate change, you know, is. Um, And I think that there are like lots of different perceptions of what, what the problems are out there. Like, and I, and I don't think that particular people in the tech community who talk about singularity or, you know, like the AI is coming and we're going to be, you know, Uh, uh, slaves to ai i don't think that they're necessarily helping um because it's these issues are really complex like when you talk about compass or like you know recidivism risk algorithms you're, you're not really having a conversation about the algorithm you kind of are but what you're really having a conversation about is like institutional you know racism and like the history of our country and how it could come, you know, to be this way and like how did the data get to be the way that it is and then the data gets fed into the algorithm and then the out then you've reached kind of the algorithm point. And I just feel like in general the public is quite ill prepared to have those kinds of conversations just because there's not a lot of good information out there and there's a lot of conflicting information and there's a lot of fear mongering. So so I think that's something that is really hard to cope with because as a researcher you always want to very much uh, clarify the limitations of your research and say you you never want to say like hey I found that this system was biased and then someone to go and say hey the system is biased and also doing x y and z bad thing that you the universe said so I think I think that's a really challenging problem it's just dealing with public perception making sure that the public is informed and educated about it. And then being able to discuss your research in the context of kind of the truth of the situation.
0: Yeah. um, So in this uh, hypothetical AI regulatory agency, what kind of insights do you feel like uh, you might offer? Or I guess in other words, why do you feel like students or or researchers should have a seat at this table?
1: Um, I think it's very clear why researchers should have a seat at the table so something that worries me that keeps me up at night is sometimes I'll go online and uh you know you'll see those articles like coffee will make you live longer if you drink 1.7 cups a day you know like stuff like that or uh research shows dark chocolate is you know in the long term helps you lose weight you you know you see stuff like that and the problem there is that some research scientist somewhere did a study um, found something interesting and then the research got relabeled as something that's kind of sexy or like um, catchy or like outrageous once those things get out there it's really hard to say like uh, no, this is actually how the study works. It was only on these people. It was only at this point in time, and this other thing was happening that could have affected it. So it, it's you know, but then but then people will get the side like hmm, dark chocolate, like it'll make me lose weight, and you know if you're talking about a regulatory agency, I think you really need researchers on that board to. Very clearly articulate like what is and isn't an issue. So like again like this issue of singularity or uh, you know this idea that AI could turn into our overlords or something like that. I don't want a regulatory commission working on that right now because that is not technologically feasible now or for the foreseeable future. And I don't want something one of you know some of my research to get rebranded that way. I don't want a fellow researchers research to get rebranded that way and i think it's really important to have people who understand these systems understand why they're bad when they're bad why they're good when they're good um to inform you know politicians to inform the public um you know as a student i think i think that their students students offer a lot of i think students especially student researchers can offer many of the same things. Students are fresh off of their, you know, education. Ideally, they are, you know, interning in industry and can kind of see problems firsthand, but also see where, you know, industry kind of needs academia. They they sit in that, like, kind of sweet spot um, to kind of branch what the academics are worried about, what, you know, the software engineers um, are worried about. And I think that they can offer that insight. On top of the fact that it's always good to have Fresh voices, um, Like, you know, something I said earlier is we see women really trailblazing in this fairness, accountability and transparency community. And that's because the culture somewhat in tech has has shifted and is a bit more inclusive than it was even when I started, you know, five, six years ago. And and students really represent that young students. They they kind of represent you know, the culture of society is like moving towards, and I think that's important to have. Not to mention just energy, you know, and and ability to an ability to commit to these these problems in ways that sometimes you know uh, parents or or full time um, you know people who work all the time might have. Not to say that students don't do those things; um, they do, uh, but just like on average. Uh, I think you, I think you see this, in and um, like especially in like political campaigns or things like that. Um, but like, not to mention, I think so. Something I hate is when you bring up issues of diversity, and people are like, "But diversity of thought, diversity of background, and and they they kind of weaponize that phrase. Like, yes, you always want diversity of thought, you always want diversity of experiences because uh, that helps you better anticipate potential different cases, potential, you know, decision trees that are coming your way. And I think that for a committee like the one that you're proposing, you want all of these people. You want researchers, you want computer scientists, you want social scientists to understand, you know, how to study people and, and measure the impact of, you know, different forces on, on people. You have politicians and ethicists and all of these types of things. You want public citizens um, on, on this, but uh you know ai really really touches everyone and i think like if people are really interested and invested in this issue and they and they kind of realize the potential dangers of um of artificial intelligence as well as the potential like beneficial factors um you want to have a, you want to have those people you want to give people who are invested a voice because ultimately politicians computer scientists you know um ethicists these are not the only people who are affected by ai everybody's affected by ai
0: so this is the final question unless you have anything else you might want to add um with respect to this whole fear-mongering you know i am kind of going to partake in that a little bit here you know there are two quotes by um, marvin minsky who founded the mit media lab that i really love because it highlights these two very polarizing views of artificial intelligence. And and one is that, you know, as artificial intelligence is popularized, Minsky has said that robots will either be our children or that if we're lucky, they might decide to keep us as pets, which, you know, are two very different ways of looking at this problem or looking at this new digital era. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, what do you think about those two viewpoints and which direction are we headed in?
1: Yeah. Okay. So I have, I have two different thoughts on this. Um, and so I don't think either answer your question a hundred percent. So sorry that this feels a little bit like a co- like a cop out, but you know, in the course that I took with, um, with Jonathan Zitrain and, and Joey Ito, this question came up a lot. Like, do we, Go ahead and prepare for like singularity, like, which I think is the will be their pets situation. Or do we kind of do like how, how, how much resources do we allocate to that problem essentially? So we know that, you know, AI has issues now. Um, it's harming people yesterday and today and will tomorrow. Um, and we know that there is perhaps, you know, an exponentially more dangerous situation coming down the line, you know, should AI gain human levels or more, you know, um, intelligence and could potentially overtake society. And so the question I think then becomes uh, how, how much resources do you allocate to each of these issues? And based off of that allocation, you kind of have the the answer of what society thinks are they, are we going to be pets or are they going to be children? And I tend to side on the camp of we know that real harms are occurring now. Um, This AI thing we know is a marathon. As you said, like, we know that this conversation is just, like, the first iteration of multiple conversations to come. So if it's a marathon, let's focus on the mile that we're on now. Um, And so I tend right now to side a little bit uh, with AI – our children because I haven't seen anything that makes me really worry. Like singularity, gotta worry about it. Could be tomorrow. Could be the next day. You know, I, I, I'm just not, I'm just not there yet and I don't think that will be there in my lifetime. Um, I always, I always joke that like I want the next big AI like feature film, you know, like, uh, like can we brand it as like Odyssey two or something? Um, I really just wanted to be a programmer sitting at their computer, like, debugging, because I think if people understood the process of building these things and, like, just understood that it's a lot of writing code and then, like, yelling at your computer and then realizing that you, the human, missed a semicolon. Like, if, if people understood um, kind of what the process looked like, I, I think that they would be a little less worried about, about uh, singularity. Um, so so like, if I'm gonna subscribe to the question, I think we're still we're still at AI as our children. They're still toddlers, we're still teaching them things. Um, and I, I'm sure that they will grow up, but I don't know how quick that will be. Part of me though is like I've heard this this discussion happen so many times, like this metaphor of, Will they bear our children? Will we be the pets? Um, will they take over us? You, you hear lots of, you know, I've used the word overlords, that kind of a thing. Um, you you hear that a lot. And something that I'm very careful about is is usage of metaphor, um, because I think I think when we find these metaphors that work really really well, um, they are useful until they're not. And what I mean by that is it's really easy to think like these are our two options because this is the the predominant metaphor, this is what gets discussed. Um, we have this discussion in our group like you see lots of uh, researchers out there and companies like I think Twitter announced recently that they're going to be using um, what they call kind of like health statistics to measure um, community and like polarization and that kind of a thing on, on their platform. and. There's lots of good work going into that and thinking about like, okay, maybe this technology problem, maybe we can model it the same way that, you know, maybe we can model this technology problem as a public health problem. Um, And like, that is a really useful metaphor, you know, especially if you're talking about building indicators, or if you're talking about, you know, pandemics and spread through networks and that kind of thing, that's very helpful. Or... Earlier, I mentioned this kind of like behavioral science metaphor that we're using to understand AI, and it's easy because it's easy to get trapped in those and to think that's the only the only way to look at this problem. But you know, when we pose this question of like pets or pets or children, pets or children, um, that's not what people are trying to do. People are trying to build assistants. They're trying to build secretaries. They're trying to build you know butlers or or pilots you know that kind of a thing and i think that a good thing to think about is okay if, if if we don't have the options of them being pets we don't have the options of them being children what do we aspire for them to be um and i haven't come up with a good answer for this yet but i think people are, are working on it and thinking about it and that's that's quite that gives me a lot of hope
0: For Blakely, the dichotomy between these two quotes is not that simple. It's not just pets or children, or in other words, it's not just whether or not people control machines or if machines control people, but it's thinking more broadly about how we want machines to be. After thinking about this idea, it reminded me of history, that historically, although different societies could have had access to the same technologies, They used them in completely different ways. The classic example of China's ancient fireworks being adapted in the West as gunpowder. And so, just because we have these new technological capabilities, it does not at all define or circumscribe how they will be used in our society. And they have tremendous power. So the question then becomes... Who will be watching out for the social and ethical implications of these tools and how they're used? Tune in next time to find out.